following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Father, we need your help this morning because we're opening your word and our enemy is like a little bird who seeks to peck up the word from our hearts. As soon as it lands, before it can take root, he is active um, to take that word away from us. He's also active to distract us, to distort my words, uh, to lead me into uh, paths of bad doctrine and um, bad examples. So please help us this morning. Protect us from him. He is a defeated enemy. Um, and so we pray that you would please keep him far from us. Uh, we do pray this morning that as we open your glorious word together, as we continue this series in the book of John, coming to the end now of our series, Lord, that you would keep us focused on who Jesus is. That you keep our minds open to ask the question, who is this man? And that you'd help us, especially those of us here this morning who aren't yet followers of Jesus, to see him for who he is, the ruling, reigning, royal Son of God. And we pray in his good name. Amen. All right, take up a Bible. If you don't have one with you, there should be one at the end of your row. Um, help each other out, pass Bibles around if you don't have one. We're in John chapter 12 and we're looking at verses 1 to 11, a nice short passage this week uh, compared to where we've been in the last few. And um, John chapter 12, who's got a page number for those who are flicking around? Anyone got a church Bible? No. 898 in the church Bible, 898. So John chapter 12. Verses 1 through 11. If you're here this morning and don't own a Bible, then take that one with you. That's our gift to you. We love to buy Bibles for people who don't own them, so please take that. Make sure you go to the uh, Bible trolley and pick one that looks really clean and new. Um, You can do that. We won't judge you. All right, let's read. John chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him, that's for Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the last crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, This morning we're going to do uh, what we usually do and just 
step through this together, step through this passage. Uh, the aim in doing that is to um, together learn how to read the Bible, read it in its context, read it in the order that God has given it to us, and also to um, uh, trust God that he will make clear to us the meaning of his word. There's this great theological term called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity? I'm pretty sure it's not that word, actually, but it sounds a bit like that, so if you say it fast, people will believe you anyway. So, the perspicuity of Scripture. And it's the understanding that God's Word is understandable. I know many of us come to it and find it difficult to understand. It sounds foreign. It sounds um, ancient. Um, and the Bible is an old book. And in parts, it is hard to understand. And without the context, it can be confusing. But as Christians, we believe that God has given us the same spirit in our hearts as that spirit which inspired the words of Scripture. And so the spirit who dwells within us, the Holy Spirit, makes plain to us the meaning of God's word when we pray and read and trust him to lead us as we go. So that's what we're doing this morning as we open God's word together. So as I said, we're coming to the end of our journey through chapters 1 to 12 of John. Um, We started out on a 20-week look at uh, chapters 1 to 12, and um, then we're going to pick up the rest of it in February next year. And the reason we did that is because John is basically written in two halves. You've got uh, chapter 1 to 12, which deals mainly with his miracles, with his teaching, um, and then you have uh, chapter 13 to 21, which is mainly dealing with his death with his last week on earth. And so half the book is dealing with uh, his last week on earth, Passion Week. And, and chapter, chapter 12 acts, is like a hinge between those two halves. And so we transition in this chapter this morning from his uh, life of teaching and miracles the last kind of three years through to his last week on earth. And so next year we will pick up this uh, second half of the book, uh, looking at his last week of his life, leading up to Easter is when we'll finish it off. Um, And uh, so that'll be our Easter series. Um, This week I decided that we wouldn't stop at 20 weeks in this first half of the series. We're going to go for 21. And so we're just going to knock it out by an extra week. And I did that because when you have a a long series like this, 20 weeks in a row, um, with one theme that we've been working through all the way, I think it's important at the end of it to be able to just recap where we've been. Some of you have missed parts, um, everyone has missed parts, um, and, and, and there's been a lot for us to take in. So uh, next week we'll finish chapter 12, the following week we'll just recap who Jesus said he is through the first 12 chapters of John, and I'll do a Q&A bit at the end there, okay? So during that time I'll just take questions from the floor um, at the end of the sermon. If there's been anything that hasn't made sense or anything you disagree with or Uh, anything like that, be thinking about those things in the next couple of weeks and come in two Sundays' time ready to engage around uh, those issues, all right? Okay. So we've come to chapter 12 now, and uh, just to provide a bit of context for us, we need to just go back into the previous chapter because once again, we have a chapter break in a a less than helpful place. Uh, God didn't do the chapter breaks, that was sinful men, all right? So 
Let's just back it up. Pretend we didn't finish uh, chapter 11 last week and go to verse 55. This will give us the context. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So we've seen this trajectory with Jesus um, from the beginning of his ministry through a whole lot of conflict, a lot of which he provoked, uh, to this point now where he's, he's wanted. He's a wanted man. Uh, in the past, the authorities have been working behind the scenes to try and ensnare him, to trip him up, to arrest him. Now it's just that they've given up on that because he keeps escaping from them. If you read through John, it just keeps happening that they've got him right there, they've surrounded him, and then he kind of just escapes. So uh, that's, that's Jesus. And the reason that he has been escaping like that is because John says his hour has not yet come. So God says, Jesus doesn't die yet, therefore you can't have him. And this is true for all of us. The great missionary, I think it was John Patton, who lived on the island of Vanuatu with cannibalistic uh, uh, natives when he was ministering to them. Uh, people a few years before had been uh, boiled and eaten alive and he went to the island and people were trying to tell him not to do it. He felt convicted that he ought to do it and his words were, I am immortal until my work for God is done. I am immortal until my work for God is done. And that's the truth. You die when God says you die. Jesus said himself, a sparrow doesn't fall from the tree apart from God's will. And so that's not an excuse just to go out and run on the freeway somewhere and trust that you won't get hit by a car. I'm not saying that. But the truth is that God is sovereign over life and death. And so up to this point, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Therefore, Jesus had not been arrested and killed. Now we come to the point, and we're going to hear in the series next year, that he finally says, I think it's chapter 17, my hour has come. He knows he's going to die. And this is the lead up to, this po- to that point. The Pharisees have made it public. They've gone public. They've had a promotion uh, plan put into place. Everyone knows, if you see Jesus, let us know because he's going down. We're going to arrest him. And so a bunch of them are standing around. They've come in for the con- from the country for the big Passover meal celebrating the exodus from Egypt. They've come from all around and the question on everyone's lips is, where's Jesus? He's attained that kind of uh, celebrity status now because of who he was and what he did. And so everyone wants to know, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he not going to come? And that's the context for this passage that we've just read. We're going to see this morning, I'm going to focus on six different people that I think kind of represent a microcosm of all of the people who have engaged with Jesus through this gospel. Probably all the people who have engaged with Jesus in the last 2,000 years. These people who we are introduced to or or reintroduced to this morning provide a a, a microcosm or or a collection of the different responses that people have to Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. And we'll work through them character by character. We're going to start with Lazarus. You remember him last week? He was the dead guy. He was the rotting guy. He was the stinking guy. I read the uh, King James Version of that passage this week. 
And the, the literal uh, King James version is when, Mary, when Martha says, Jesus, don't open the tomb. He's been in there four days. She says, he stinketh. All right? So, ladies, remember that when your husband... Uh, I don't think we're going to finish that. All right? I apologize. Um, he stinketh. All right, so verse 1 and 2, we're going to read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So you just got to imagine that dinner. Like, imagine being at that dinner. They're all reclining so that the, the uh, custom was you had a low table. Don't believe the Passion of the Christ where Jesus invents the upright chair. Right? That didn't happen. That was a that was poetic uh, license. But there's a, there's a kind of a low table or perhaps just the floor and you would recline with your feet kind of sticking out. Uh, I think you'd lean on your, your, your left hand and, and pick stuff up with your right hand. Right? Very relaxing way to eat. Um, and so they're all there and you, you imagine them kind of splayed out like spokes on a wheel around a table and they're reclining there, and Lazarus is one of those who's reclining there. That's an interesting dinner party guest, right? That's an interesting guest. You ever been asked one of those questions, you know, icebreaker question, who would you like to eat with, living or dead? That's, that's someone to, 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 to eat with, right? Dead and living. Once dead, now living. You've got to imagine the conversations they're having with Lazarus about what it was like four days in a tomb, cold, dead, gone, starting to stink, skin starting to slough off in the Middle Eastern climate. The interesting thing is, right, and this is a weird thing to me, and it's frustrating for me because I like history, um, and I like detailed history. The frustrating thing is that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, one of Jesus' greatest miracles. John was there at this meal, presumably reclining with him at the table, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He has now become, Lazarus, one of the key witnesses to Jesus' uh, deity, having been raised from the dead. He's in the flesh there. That's what's got the Jews so worried. You can't deny when a dead guy gets up again and starts walking around and eating dinner. And yet John doesn't include anything that Lazarus says. Like, not a word. There isn't a word from Lazarus. Like, what was it like? He could have had a book deal, a movie deal, Heaven is for Real or something like that. Nothing. Nothing. And John is such a subtle writer. There's so much in John's writing that you don't get on the first reading. He has such subtlety in his writing. And I think what's behind this, this silence from Lazarus, is John's understanding that that miracle, that raising from death to life, that that is all about Jesus, it's not about Lazarus. That that miracle, as he says in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that miracle is... is is there to point to Jesus, not to Lazarus. And Lazarus himself, I think, understands that. He's not out doing press conferences and writing books and getting movie deals because he knows it's not about me. This is not about me. My resurrected 
existence isn't about me, it's about Jesus. You notice the meal is in honour of Jesus, not Lazarus. He's just on the guest list. And this is so important for us. If you're a Christian here this morning, you too have been raised from death to life. You didn't just spend four days in the tomb, you spent the years leading up to your conversion in the tomb, dead, in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. Dead. Stinking dead. And Jesus raised you from death to life, from spiritual death to life, and the result ought to be a life lived in honour of Him, a life lived that points to Him, a testimony that makes much of Him. I remember when I was converted. It happened in in pretty extraordinary circumstances. If you hadn't heard the story, ask me. I'd be glad to tell you. I was 19 and just a lot of crazy stuff was going on. And God saved me and raised me from spiritual death. And for the next two years, I went around doing the speaking circuit around churches in Melbourne, telling my story. Telling this amazing story about how God had saved me. And it wasn't for two years up to the point where I, I finally got to... Uh, uh, I think it was college or maybe um, speaking in a church where um, someone from the, from the Bible college was um, on ministry team. I can't remember exactly, but I gave this talk, got down feeling pretty good about myself because by now it was a, it was a kicking talk, right? It, had, it was like a, it was a good talk. And, um, and, and he said to me, he was really gracious, he caught up with me and said, you know, that, that was a really good talk. You've clearly got gifts in speaking in public and and um, the way that you said it was very engaging. But I'm just, I'm just wondering, did Jesus have anything to do with your conversion? Mm. Yeah, that bit. Forgot about that bit. That bit where Jesus graciously saved me apart from my works. That bit. I'd made this testimony of my conversion, all about me. What I was like and what I'm like now and what I went through through that period and and, and what I'm doing now. And, 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 And in my story, I was the hero. In my story, I was on the slab, but I was the one who yelled out, Jonathan, come forth. And so we have this danger when we're sharing our story of how God saved us to to make it all about us. But Lazarus is a good example here. He knows, right? We ought to know, but he knows for sure he had nothing to do with this. He was gone. And without the words of Jesus proclaimed as the creator of all things, he'd still be in the tomb. We ought to be thinking the same way about our own spiritual journey. So what we say to people here. Um, when you're preparing to share your testimony with us, is the big idea is make Jesus the hero. Make Jesus the hero of your story. I learned that through painful personal experience. Um, I'm going to remind you a little bit later on, but we've got this uh, really cool idea that Aaron came up with. Erin got saved uh, recently and baptised, and so she's got fresh in her mind the grace of God to her, and so she's really keen to... Um, <laughs> she met with me the other day. This is one of the most beautiful moments in my life. She met with me and she said, you know, um, uh, since my baptism, I just get this strong feeling that um, 
that uh, God wants me to make Jesus known to the world. Like, come on. Uh, my, my work here is done, right? I'm, 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 I'm going to move now. I, I, there's nothing more to do. That's it. If God's gracious to us, more and more and more people will be coming to each one of us and saying, you know, I think God wants me to spend the rest of my life making Jesus known. And so she had this idea, one of the ways that we could do that is by making a video and, um, and recording people's testimonies, different people, different cultural backgrounds, different genders, different age groups, and putting together in a video that we could have on the website, that we could show um, as, a, as a tool to let people know the kind of people that are here and the way that God's working in their lives. And that's an awesome idea. Get involved with that if you can. Uh, and support that as much as you can. Um, but the idea is that we make Jesus the hero in our testimony. So that's Lazarus, silent Lazarus, lying there at the table, having been raised from the dead. Next we've got Martha, verse 2. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them as well. So Martha is here serving. And you might remember another story about Martha and service. You might remember there's, uh, I think I've got it on the screen, in, um, in Luke 10, 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. This is, a pretty, uh, this is a very popular verse at women's conferences, if you've ever been to one of those. So let me read it. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so this passage is often used, and often at conferences, to commend sitting over standing. Right? To commend sitting and quietly listening for the voice of Jesus rather than standing and hurrying about and being active. But I've got to tell you, that's not what this is about. This doesn't commend sitting over standing. It doesn't commend um, quietness or serenity or, um, or, or rest over busyness. That's not the point. The, the better thing that Jesus is talking about that, that that Mary has chosen and Martha didn't, was to have a God-centered demeanor in what she was doing. A God-centered, a Christ-centered demeanor in what she was doing. So whether you're sitting or standing, Jesus wants you to be centered on Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, sitting, standing, quiet, busy, do it to the glory of God. So the point isn't that we all should be monks and sit around in a monastery and just think about Jesus and listen for his still, small voice. The point is, whatever you do, whether you've got four little kids and you just run off your feet or you're working two jobs or, or whatever it is, Jesus wants God-centeredness and that's the main thing. For Martha, in that Luke passage... 
her anxiety and her trouble were coming between her and Jesus because they were distracting her mind off God's centeredness and a desire to glorify him. And, and, and so her mind was consumed with anxiety and worry and trouble. Can you see what's going on there? It's not the action, it's the demeanor that Jesus takes issue with. And the beautiful thing in this passage is that, is that Martha is doing exactly the same thing as back there in Luke 10. She's doing exactly the same thing. She's running around, she's serving, she's probably ordering everyone around, telling Lazarus off, you know, getting Mary to do this and that. Right? She's, she's still that organizer, she's still that classic mum, but, but there's no rebuke here. It seems that she has been changed in her heart by Jesus into a God-centered servant, into a God-centered busybody, if there's such a thing, right? Someone who loves working, loves organizing, loves productivity, but does it for the glory of God, does it in Jesus' service. So I just want to rescue you from guilt this morning. If you're one of those people who who has a a big to-do list and you like productivity and you like getting things done, the problem with that, Jesus says, is when it turns into anxiety, it turns into trouble, and it separates you from being able to do it in worship, that's a problem. But if you can do that to the glory of God, I think Jesus says, go for it. Get that to-do list done. The issue is whether it's worship or whether it's worry, I guess. I know there are a bunch of people in our church and it's not just the ladies, though it tends to be more of an issue for them, but I know there is a huge, huge problem with anxiety, with worry, with feeling hassled, with feeling harried, with always feeling like you've got no energy, no time, no, no inclination to worship God. And some of you feel unable to put that time into worshipping God because to do that you would need to cut down your to-do list and there's just nothing on there that isn't a priority. Now for some people there might be things on that list that shouldn't be a priority. But for some of you, you just need to shift your way of doing all of those things so that it's not anxiety fueled but worship fueled. Does that make sense? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's the big idea. So we've had Lazarus, we've had Martha. Let's look at Mary in verse 3. She does an extraordinary thing. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now to us this sounds really weird, Um, going up to someone and pouring something on their feet and wiping their feet with your hair is pretty weird. In this context, it, it's still a little bit weird, but less so, because, um, as I said, at this table, you'd be reclining, feet facing out, and, and someone would come and, and clean your feet while you're eating. Uh, you'd be at a restaurant, someone would be paid to come and clean your feet. When you're at home, someone from the household, preferably a servant, and most preferably a Gentile servant, because it's kind of the, the lowest duty you can have, would come and wash your feet. Remember you're in, middle, in the Middle East um, where you're wearing thongs or sandals or nothing on your feet and there's a lot of donkeys, a lot of horses, a lot of cows, a lot of sheep, right? So there's a lot of dung. And you're going to be walking through that a lot. So when you come into someone's house, 
They don't want you tracking that around everywhere, so someone's going to come and wash all that crap off your feet. Um, so in that sense, it's not unusual for this to happen. What's unusual is for a woman in Mary's elevated position as a wealthy woman. We learnt last week, these are wealthy people, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. They've got their own tomb. Uh, she's got this bottle of perfume, very expensive. And for her to condescend low enough to come and wash, uh, anoint sorry, Jesus' feet was quite a thing, quite a weird thing to happen. In the next chapter, you'll see, uh, as we go next year, Jesus washing the disciples' feet in a similarly condescending fashion. That is him condescending himself, humiliating himself in doing that. And so it's a little bit weird that this has happened, but Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't think it's strange. He thinks it's appropriate. In fact, the only guy he rebukes is Judas for trying to tell her off. And what she's done is not only a little bit strange for the day, but absolutely extraordinary in terms of the cost of her actions. And there's a couple of layers going on here, as often there is with John's writing. Again, subtle writer. There's a couple of layers to this. Kind of in the bigger picture, in the most significant way, she is making a profound theological statement about Jesus. A profound theological statement. I don't think she knows it, but that's what she's doing. Just as Caiaphas did last chapter, without knowing it, made a profound theological statement without intending it to be, so Mary is doing it here. And Jesus picks up on it in verse 7 and 8. She, he says after rebuking Judas, um, or while rebuking Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Another translation is, it is intended for the day of my burial. I think that's probably a better one. It's in, this was intended for the day of my burial. Jesus is saying, whether she knows it or not, she is making a statement right now about what I'm about to do. This last week of my life is going to lead to my death and burial, and ultimately my resurrection. And so doing this, Mary is preparing me for the tomb. This is an anointing oil that you would use on a dead body. Maybe she bought it for Lazarus and now she doesn't need it anymore, praise God. But Jesus said God's intention was that it's for my burial. This is a sign about what I'm about to do. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. It's not some kind of, you know, crazy tragedy that he ends up in the tomb. This is God's intention. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And so there's that level going on, but as far as Mary's concerned, I think it's just, it's just flat-out worship. This is just a flat-out demonstration of her love for Jesus, her recognition of who He is and her commitment to Him that she will give everything for Him. She will lay everything out in worship to Him, not just in humiliating herself in doing that dirty job, but in giving one of the most expensive gifts that she could give. So this perfume, right? It's a pound of pure nard. It doesn't sound very appetizing. It sounds like lard to me. Does anyone else think that? A pound of lard? That's where my mind goes. Anyway, apparently it's very expensive stuff. Because Judas, who's good with the money apparently, uh, good at taking the money at least, he calculates this thing's worse, worth 300 denarii. Denarius is worth uh, a laborer's wages for a day. So you're talking about a year's wages for a labourer. 
And at the moment in Australia, the average wage for a labourer, a construction labourer, is 45 grand. All right, so $45,000 bottle of perfume. That's an expensive bottle of perfume. Ladies, don't get any ideas, all right? Yeah, pure nard, Xmas list. $45,000 worth. Now, these guys are probably pretty wealthy, but that's, a, that's an expensive gift. I remember when we first got married, Renee and I, when we first got married, um, I, I, I worked as a labourer myself um, and uh, to try and get through university. And so... Um, there was one point where we were staying, friends of ours had a, a uh, beach house, um, and, uh, and we were down there, and um, it had just been our, um, no, it had just been her birthday, that's right, and I had bought her a thing of perfume, and she really likes this perfume called Innes, it's made in Ireland, you can't really get it anywhere, it costs lots of money to get it out, and so on my laborer's wages. I bought her this thing, the biggest one I could afford, and it came out, and I gave it to her, and she was taking it away with us for, you know, um, to, you know, get the mood going, and, um, and I don't know, whatever, and make herself smell nice, probably, and, um, and she was in the bathroom, and we were getting ready to go out. This was before kids, all right? We were going out at night time, and, um, and I just heard this smash, smash, and, uh, the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house, uh, in John's words. The whole thing was smashed, gone. And I was like toilet paper trying to mop it up, trying to like at least spot some on her, but it was gone. And my expensive gift out of my laborer's wages was destroyed. That was an $80 bottle of perfume. This is $45,000 right here. And the thing about perfume in this day, there's no kind of, you know, mechanisms for reusing and, and using a little bit of time. This is one bottle sealed. To get anything out, you've got to break it. And so it's, it's one use only, single use. Now, for anointing a dead body, you're probably going to use the whole thing. In this case, though it wasn't even necessary for her to use anything more than water, she breaks a 45K bottle of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet lets down her hair, which is very unusual for a woman in Jesus' day to do, and wipes his feet with her hair, anoints his feet. I just think it's a beautiful picture of unselfconscious, unrestrained, unmitigated worship. It's just a beautiful picture of someone who just couldn't care less what everyone else thinks, what everyone else will say, couldn't care less about her bank balance, couldn't care less about anything else than just being able to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. She's just letting everything go. And, and I, I long for the day where you can come to this church and likewise just avail yourself in worship and not be worried about what these people are going to think, what they're going to say. The same goes for money, by the way. I mean, we're going to get onto this in a few weeks' time, talking more about money. But, but you notice Jesus, over and again, people do what the world would say is just crazy stuff with money, unwise stuff, unthought through, even wasteful. The widow who puts in her last coin and Jesus praises her, puts it into the, the treasury at the temple. He doesn't say, no, 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 other people will pick up your tab. No, he says, 
She's praiseworthy. Mary, who drops 45k on his feet, praised for it. I think we can be very quick sometimes to save people from sacrificial giving. But Paul in 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 praises the Macedonians who gave out of their severe poverty to the work of the gospel. Unwise. And yet praised because it was done in an act of worship. And so I just wonder this morning, what, what is it for you that you that God might be calling you to give up in worship to Him? What's that costly thing? What's that expensive thing? What's that thing that's nearest and dearest to you? That up to this point you haven't been willing to give up in worship to Him. It may be money. It may be your kids. It may be your job that's just an unfruitful job for you to have, that's leading you away from Jesus, taking you away from your family. It might be any kind of thing that's, that's causing your heart to wander from faith in Jesus, where you're doing a reverse math, you're, you're, you're starting perhaps in God-centeredness, but this is causing you to worry and be anxious and to be troubled, and, and, and all of a sudden it's not about Jesus anymore. It's not a life of worship anymore. What is it that thing that could be an expensive thing? It could be a six-figure salary thing. It could be a really shiny thing. It could be a precious thing. What is it that's holding you back from worshipping Jesus? You can worship Jesus by giving up your kids to Him. We do that here through dedication. You can come up here and say, I give these kids into Jesus' hands. I entrust them to Him. He is good. He is sovereign. And He will take care of them. I, I, I take away my rights to be anxious about them. Think about it. Pray about it. It's probably the thing you're trying not to think or pray about. That's the tip. So we've had Lazarus, we've had Martha, we've had Mary, and now comes Judas. Our good buddy Judas. Verse 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot. I love the way John writes about Judas. He just hates him, right? In a Christian way. He always does these little edits in his writing about him just to remind you how much of an a moron Judas is, okay? So Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, 45 grand, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so in contrast to Mary, who's just given up something very expensive, something very dear in the service of Jesus, we have Judas who follows Jesus in order to get for himself, in order to take for himself, in order to gain. Mary who serves to give, Martha who serves to give, Judas who serves to receive. And you're going to see people like this around today. You'll see people who come across like great disciples of Jesus. Who picked that Judas was going to be the one to betray Jesus? No one. 
the night before Jesus died, on the night that Judas betrayed him, they're all going, who's going to be the one? We've got no idea. Could be Peter for all we know. Probably not Judas. He's, he's really quiet and he cares about the poor a lot. So, Right? No one knows. He just looks like a godly disciple. Followed Jesus for three years. And so you're going to see this today. People who have the appearance of godly, devoted discipleship and all they're there for is to gain for themselves. You need to hear this. This is more common than we like to admit. They are there preaching. They are there serving. They are there writing books. They are there running small groups. They are there serving on the roster so that they can gain. So that they can gain financially, so that they can gain influence, so that they can gain power over what the Bible calls naive women, so that they can have their way with them. I've seen all of those things happen in church today. So there are men and women on your TV screens who are there to get rich. And they hate the Jesus that they're talking about. But they know that Jesus equals money. Religion equals money. Religion equals power. It always has. It is a great way to leverage cash out of people's pockets. And that's exactly what Judas is doing. What about the poor? We should have given it to the poor. And after we've given it to the poor, I'll take my cut. People will have good moral intentions on the outside for their own deceitful, greedy purposes. Very rarely will you see a wolf in a church who is helping himself to the sheep who looks that way. Now it's going to ha- they're going to have a concern for the single women's ministry where there are vulnerable women who he can take advantage of. He's going to have a concern for the finances of the church. Because we want to release funds for the work of the gospel. And it gives me access to take a little for myself. Jesus said, by your fruits you will know them. And so we should be on the lookout for people like this. We need to expect, friends. Everyone look right at me right now. We need to expect that there will be false teachers coming into our church, not sitting at the back, like, coming in, I'd like to be a growth group leader, please. I just want to serve and lead people astray. Right? People who want to get involved in the kids' ministry because they're pedophiles and they want to touch your kids, abuse your kids. We need to expect this. This is the reality. This is the world we live in now And it was the reality of the world they lived in then. The human heart has not changed a bit. I'll leave it up to you whether you believe in evolution or not, but there has been no evolution of the human heart. It is just as black, just as dark as it was in Judas' day. So as much as we want to look at Judas and and condemn him, he walks among us. And churches are just ripe for the picking, guys. They're just ripe for the picking. So many trusting, smiley people. Where else would you want to be if you're a pedophile? Yeah, we really need help in the kids' ministry. Yeah, go straight in. 
We really struggle to get people to count money after church. So, yeah, if you could just help us out, that would be great. I once met a guy who's an ex-crim who told me that in the circles he moved in, they talked about church all the time. And I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, yeah, because it's the easiest place to con people. It's the easiest place to steal stuff. It's the easiest place to get what you want with women. God have mercy if we let that be the case here. And tell you, we are working, and you've got to trust me on this, even though it takes time, we are working to make this place the safest place for your kids. A lot of the Maori guys who come to this church are actually being paid as security guards. Right? There was a secret until now. They're actually being paid to be security guards. Um, so... We love you guys. Thanks, Richie. Appreciate your time, mate. Um, and we're trying to, that was all completely a joke. You guys are just so not with me this morning. It's making me sad. I, I do want to say seriously, though, we're trying to, for this to be the case in our finances. We, we have a mission to be the most transparent church that we can be in terms of finances. So if you have a question about finances, don't assume that we're trying to hide everything from you. Just come to us. Find out someone who's a warden and ask them, because they're in charge of the, the money bag, and, and ask them, or the treasurer, John, who's down the back there, ask them, what do we do with money here? Where does the money go? How much does John owe him? How do you break down his pay? Right? Ask them these questions. We want to be as completely upfront as we can be. In our annual report, you can grab on the Bible trolley. It's the last time I'll say it. Uh, on the way out, you'll find graphs and figures and as much info as we can give you to make everything as plain as we can. We get audited from the outside by an independent auditor to make sure nothing dodgy is going on and we're trying to make it more and more transparent for you guys to see this is not one of those shady deals where we're trying to shake money out of your pockets. All right? That's not what's going on. My salary doesn't change a cent depending on what's given. Um, there's none of that. I think that's all I need to say. But that Judas is an example to us of what can and does and will happen in the church through the greed and the depravity of human hearts. So we've got Lazarus, we've got Martha, we've got Mary, we've got Judas. Now we've got this crowd of Jews. All right, verse 9. Stay with me, guys. We're, 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 we're coming to the end, okay? When the large crowd, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so you've got this crowd of Jews. This is probably the same crowd that have been following Jesus around recently. They are seekers. They are inquisitive. They've seen a bit of Jesus. They've heard a bit about him. They're not yet Christians. They're still identified as Jews. But they're just not sure about who Jesus is. They're inquisitive. And so they've come not just because they've heard Jesus is there, but because Lazarus is there too. They're looking for evidence. They're on a search. They're, they're going to Youth Alpha or coming to one of our pre-baptism courses or one of our uh, Jesus courses where you can learn about who Jesus is or just coming on a Sunday because that's all we talk about anyway. And um, they want to know more about who Jesus is. They want to know more about what he's done. And so they come because Lazarus has become the key piece of evidence in their search, there is a man who is dead and decaying who's now alive, and that's speaking volumes to the seekers. 
because you can't deny that. That's what's got the Jews, uh, the, the chief priests all worked up in the next couple of verses. Many people are meeting Lazarus and becoming Christians because you can't argue with that, right? They can't shut that down. They can't, uh, they can't accuse Mary and Martha of just being hysterical women who are hallucinating, right? He's there. The same happened with Jesus in his resurrection. He was there 40 days. Hundreds of people saw him. You can't argue with eyewitness testimony. So there are many people today who are seeking, who are looking, who are inquisitive about who Jesus is. And this is where you guys come in because your testimony, like Lazarus's testimony, is a powerful thing. It's a powerful piece of evidence for them. It's a piece of your experience that no one can deny. You can tell them, I was in the tomb. Jesus called my name and I walked out. I was spiritually dead. I had no desire to follow Jesus, to worship Jesus, to come in on a Sunday, rainy Sunday morning, give up my paper and eggs and be here and listen to a guy shout for a while. I had no inclination. Jesus called me out of the tomb and now I love being with my brothers and sisters. You should come too. Now I have sincere inclination to want to serve people. Now I have a sincere love and commitment to my husband, to my children, because I understand that they are God's gift to me in covenant with me. You can speak these things, and they speak volumes, just like, like Lazarus did. What you'll find, unfortunately, though there will be some like these Jews who meet Lazarus, see the evidence and turn to Jesus. There are some who will refuse to see the most compelling evidence, refuse to acknowledge it at least, and so go on denying Jesus. And that's our last group of people in the last couple of verses. Verse 10 to 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus is a problem. Lazarus is a key witness to Jesus' deity. Lazarus is a key piece of evidence for Jesus' divinity. And so when the Jews, the chief priests, come and they see Lazarus alive, and they see people turning to him, and all of the evidence points to the reality of who Jesus said he was, they fall on their face and worship Jesus as their Lord, God, King, and Christ. If only it read like that. No, they say, let's kill Lazarus. Let's bump him off. Right, This was the, the political climate in Germany last century. If there's a political obstacle, if there's a religious obstacle, bump them off. Don't be a pansy about it, just get rid of them. That's their strategy. This guy is working against us, this guy is turning people to Jesus, let's kill him and Jesus. 
the, it's kind of a, a mafia mentality. And so they're faced with this evidence and they will do anything to bury it, literally in this case. And the same will be true of, God have mercy, of our friends and family. Because I don't know if you know this, but there is good, compelling, strong evidence for Jesus' life, death, burial and resurrection. There are very, very smart people very smart people, historians, scientists, theologians, you name it, who believe in the reality, the historicity of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection based on the evidence. They've seen the evidence and they can't deny it, so they submit to it. There will be others who, like these chief priests, see the evidence, see that it's compelling, see that it's way stronger than they learnt at high school and university, philosophy 101, history 101. And instead of bending the knee and submitting to Jesus and the reality of death, burial and resurrection, they will bury the evidence. They'll come up with the weirdest stuff, like the weirdest stuff, to try and bury the evidence. I've heard the weirdest arguments by smart people that they would never make in other disciplines, that they would never make in other instances trying to bury the evidence for Jesus' death, burial and resurrection because at the heart of it, they simply do not want to bend the knee to Jesus. That's, what, that's what's going on. They don't want to worship Jesus. They want to continue to worship themselves. They don't want to change. And so how are you doing with that this morning? Are you here this morning and some of this stuff is actually making sense? Maybe you've been listening to some of these sermons and it seems pretty watertight. Like we've got eyewitness evidence and it reads really logically and it doesn't seem mythical and, and other people who are really smart seem to believe it and Jesus seems really compelling and suddenly I hear the church isn't just here to get money out of me and I don't know, this kind of makes sense. You're faced with this very decision this morning. You've got some Jews turning towards him in faith and you've got others who are burying the evidence and that's your choice this morning. You've got the thief on the cross condemning him. You've got the thief on the other side of him asking him to, to remember him when he comes into paradise. Jesus will divide us, even those of us sitting here this morning. So this morning... You need to ask yourself, how do I respond? This is compelling, how do I respond? This will mean change, how do I respond? This will mean submission, how do I respond? This will mean a life of worship, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do. How do I respond? And with that in mind, I want us to pray and then have a a time of quiet reflection, thinking about what we've heard, thinking about what it means for us. And so we're going to do that now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this clear, compelling word. We thank you that your spirit is working to make it clear to us. And we trust, we trust that you are laying it on our hearts and convicting us of its truth. And so now I pray, Lord God,
lead us in paths of submission, lead us in paths of surrender, lead us in paths of worship. So now as we just sit in relative quiet, I pray that that for those who are here who are not yet believers, that you would turn turn them away from the worship of self and help them to surrender their lives to you. Lord, call them out of the tomb in that loud voice. Lazarus, come out. That you would call them out of that tomb of spiritual death as you have done for each one of us, all by your grace. It's a free gift, Lord. Please, please help us to take hold of it. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.